parts than we've done on, I think, any series. Here's the thing. Um, if you're ever on Jeopardy and the Abraham category comes up, you're going to be like, go pick that one, 500 right away, and you'll know everything you need to know about Abraham. Uh, hopefully, as we through this, and we've got two more weeks, it's been a blessing to you to learn a little bit about this man of faith who lived 4,000 years ago. Going today, quick question for you, class participation. How many of you watched at least a little bit of the Olympics? Anybody here, Olympic watchers? It's kind of, yeah, kind of hard to miss. It, it amazes me how every four years we care about sports that we don't care about at any other time of the year. You know, like women's water polo, yeah, let's watch, or men's water, whatever it is. You know, you pick the sport. As long as it's got USA on the, on the jersey, we're in, right? This particular Olympics has been kind of special in this way. We, if you've watched, have had a chance to witness some Olympians with historic significance. The first guy I want to bring your attention to is the guy you see on the screen here. This is, yeah, Usain Bolt, exactly. He is probably the most decorated sprinter ever to run at the Olympics. The first guy ever to win the 100 200, yeah, 200, and the 4 by 100 gold for three Olympics in a row. And, I mean, he does it with style and, you know, just a little bit of arrogance as he looks around and smiles and all. I mean, I wish, well, I used to be that fast. Yeah, right. Um, here's another historical Olympian from this past year. He is, yeah, exactly, Michael Phelps. Um, he is the most decorated Olympian ever. Anyone know how many medals? How many? Close. That's gold. 28 medals total. Good job, Helmut. 23 of those, Ed was right, were gold. And 13, he is now the all-time leader in individual golds at 13. He just passed a very other well-known Olympian from the 100s B.C., his name is Leonidas of Rhodes. Everyone remember, remember him, guys? In fact, I, I searched Google and I found a picture of him for us to remind us. Um, <laughs> this is what, I think the lighting was bad and they caught him in the bathroom, in the shower, because he had, I don't know. But that is Leonidas of Rhodes, the 12 gold medal guy that Michael Phelps just passed. Now, historic people at this year's Olympics, and yet this past week, We've been thinking and hearing in the media and talking more about this guy. Who's that? Yeah, on Saturday night, one of the, our members like, Lochte. It's like Newman, you know, from Seinfeld. Like, we, we see Lochte and we just kind of like, oh, that guy's got issues. Now, the thing is, he's a really good swimmer. 12 medals. I think that puts him at second or third most for a swimmer. Um, behind Phelps and maybe someone else. He's really good at swimming, but we don't think of Lochte in swimming. We think of Lochte and, and how he can't get out of his own way, right? Like four years ago, it kind of started. Maybe it started before that, but especially four years ago where he would just have these off-kilter interviews after his, uh, his swims, and then he would be talking about partying and just things that were not very Olympic, you know, so to speak, and, you know, excessive drinking, all that. And then he had this reality TV show that was, I think, called What Would Ryan Lochte Do? And America's reply was, we don't care, you know, but he still had the show. And then this year, I remember about a week ago hearing the commentator saying, it's kind of weird. 
Lochte's just swimming. We haven't heard anything from him. And then, you know, what happened this past week? If you haven't heard, in a nutshell, he made up some details to a robbery that he was a victim of and got the Brazilian government and Brazilian police department really, really upset at him. And you can read about the rest of it if you'd like online. But here you have a guy that on the outside is a great athlete. He's in shape. He's a handsome dude. And yet, and yet, he's a mess. He's messy, isn't he? He can't seem to get out of his own way. Now, I got a question for you. Who do you relate to more, Phelps or Lochte? I know you're all going to say Phelps, but let me say, ask it a different way. We had any messy people here? Anyone kind of messy? <laughs> yeah, pointed at his, his future wife over there. That's not going to get you very far. <laughs> um, we have to admit that we, we've all got a mess, and that's why we kind of maybe giggle about it a little bit, that, that there's this thing in us, and in a way it's not necessarily wrong, but on the outside, we want everyone to, to see and to, to think that we're a, a world-class family or a world-class person or a, a world-class Olympic gold-winning relationship and marriage, right? And we put our best foot forward at work and in public and on Facebook and on Instagram and at church on Sunday morning of course, but you and I, we know it's not as beautiful on the inside, or to put it another way, <laughs> that we can't always be the person that we want to be. We aren't always the person that we portray. We can't always act the way we want to act. And to be honest, we all got a little lochty in us. It's a little messy. We've got a messy past and maybe a messy present and maybe our future looks a little bit, a little bit messy. And, and maybe, maybe, maybe the mess has led you to not come to church for a long time because here's what you thought. You thought that you had to clean up the mess that you could be nice and clean and pretty like all the other people that go to church first. <laughs> or maybe on the other side of the spectrum, if you're to be honest, you spent more of your time kind of analyzing other people's messes while our mess just kind of sits in here and everyone else sees it or your spouse sees it, but we just want to ignore it. <laughs> and for most of us, we're somewhere in between those two things, fall in a little bit of both of those areas. If you're messy, look around. This room is filled with messy people. And I'm one of them too. And in fact, if you're messy, you're in the perfect place at church because of our first fill-in for today. God has time for messy people. God has interest in people with messes. God pursues and loves messy people. Now, I haven't really given you a lot of backing to this. I just threw out this statement, and I could have said that God is a Viking fan and has a cabin on the North Shore. And, you know, there'd be, at this point, as much, you know, validity or backing to that statement than there is to this. Well, that's where, that's where the rest of the message comes in. That's where the life of Abraham comes in is to take this truth that I know you need to hear, or maybe needed to hear today, that I need to hear, and to show you 
through the scripture, through God, through Abraham's life, that this is absolutely true. And what does that mean for me today? So if you haven't been with us for this series, um, there is a whole lot of background to Abraham that we don't have time for today. My first encouragement for you is to listen or watch online. But I'm going to give you just a, a few sentences of introduction to get you where you need to be. Okay, so when Sarah was 65 and Abraham was 75, God promised that Abraham and Sarah would have a child together. 25-ish years go by, Sarah still has not had a child. She's 90, Abraham's 100. And that's kind of where we pick it up in Genesis chapter 20. They're still waiting, as God has said, within the next year now, Sarah, you're going to have that child, I promise. Before you're 91, you're going to have that child. Genesis chapter 20. So now, then, Abraham moved on from there. And I, I just got to, you know, sort of link this to last week. Last week, we learned and saw how God destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham and Sarah did not live in Sodom and Gomorrah, but they lived nearby enough that they could probably have seen the smoke in the horizon. And so it seems as if that destruction is the reason why they decided to pick up and to move from there into the region of the Negev to the south, and they lived between Kadesh and Shur, verse 2. For a while, he, Abraham, and Sarah stayed in an area called Gerar, and there Abraham said of his wife, Sarah, she's my sister. Now, this seems really weird. And it's going to get weirder for a second, okay? So one of the things we know as we continue to read Genesis chapter 20 is that actually Sarah was Abraham's half-sister. And this seems really weird in our culture and in our, our time, but I, I, I'm just going to tell you, it wasn't weird back then. There was very few people in the world and you were, you were meant to, to marry within not necessarily your family necessarily, but at least your own culture. And so this was something that God was not opposed to back then, and it wasn't wrong as the earth was populated. But they had the same father, different mothers, and could it be that that's what Abraham was referencing here? The answer is no. This is not why Abraham said this. There was, there was something else going on that I think we get to the bottom of if we go backwards a little bit to Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, Sarah and Abraham are moving or traveling towards Egypt. This is what we read. He was about to enter Egypt, and he said to his wife Sarah, Sarah, I, I know what a beautiful woman you are. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and then they will kill me, but will let you live. So here's why Abraham said that Sarah was his sister. I don't know how to say this, but she was a babe. <laughs> she was, I guess as a word, she was a looker. You know, you fill in the blank. She could have made it on the cover of some magazines. I mean, she just was a really good-looking woman, and go forward, Genesis chapter 20 again, as they were going to Gerar, Abraham was worried that they would see her, be unable to control themselves, kill Abraham, and take beautiful Sarah as their wife. Bye-bye, Abraham, and hello, wife named Sarah, okay? And so Abraham, in essence, 
shared or said a lie in order to hopefully do what? Save Sarah? (laughs) No, this plan did nothing for Sarah, but instead to save himself. Now, as I've thought about this, I have a a couple of observations, especially being that Sarah years old, when she was talking, Abraham thought she was a babe. First is this, you know, either Abraham has, you know, husband-colored eyes type of thing, you know, where it's just, you know, she's the love of my life, or she has a really good beauty program. I don't know if like some Dead Sea mud packs or some avocado cream, whatever it is, if we knew, QVC, baby, we make a lot of money, all right? Or... Again, Abraham instead was worried about himself. And my other observation being that he would do whatever it took even to lie to save himself from what could happen as they went to Gerar. Now, how did it all work out? How did his plan work out? Verse 3. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. Okay, so... All right, it wasn't rose-colored glasses, a babe at 90 years old, okay? But God, and, and I just love this conjunction and this little phrase. It happens a lot in the Bible, Old and New Testament. And whenever it appears, it's like, the people thought this, and God did that. People planned this, and God did what he had planned in the first place to do. Abraham lied, but God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, as good as dead because of the woman you have taken, she is a married woman. Next. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she's my sister? And didn't she also say, he is my brother? So Sarah was in on it too. We're going to see why in just a moment. I've done this with a clear conscience and a clean hands. I didn't know they were married. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience. You didn't know. And so I have something against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he's a prophet, that is Abraham is, and he will pray for you and you will live. But if you don't return her, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all his officials, and when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and in and said, What's the deal? What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought such on me and my kingdom? You've done things to me that should never be done. That's an understatement. And Abimelech asked Abraham, what was your reason for doing this? And Abraham replied, and he kind of hems and haws. First thing he says is this, there's surely no fear of God in this place, I thought, and they will kill me because of my wife. And he's, he's really not gaining any friends with Abimelech at this point. Basically, what he's saying, I knew you guys were pretty evil, and you'd probably just kill me and take my wife. Okay, that's what I thought. Besides, she really is my sister. Now he's kind of going in a different direction. Well, there's a little bit of truth to what I said, kind of a half-truth. The daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, why would Sarah agree to this? This is what her husband said. This is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. So it sounds like that this is something that had gone on and on and on and on, kind of their their deal. I'm going to say I'm your brother. You say you're my sister. Next verse. Then Abimelech 
brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. Now, what? Just, let's, what? Wasn't Abimelech ticked off at Abraham? Wasn't, you know, this a situation where Abimelech would have taken things from Abraham instead of given them to him? How do you explain this? But God. But God intervened. But God had a plan for Abraham and Sarah. And oh, by the way, he has a plan for you. And Abimelech said, my land is before you. Live wherever you like. So the gifts keep coming. Verse 16. To Sarah, he said, I'm giving your brother, it's kind of like wink, wink, a thousand shekels of silver. Cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You, Sarah, are completely vindicated. How did things turn out? Great. Why? Because Abraham was an expert liar and it worked just perfectly? No. Because God had a plan. And even though Abraham took things into his own hands and and, and lied instead of trusted, we see that God has time for messy people who make messy mistakes and do complete messy sins and have messy lives. And, and oh, by the way, I haven't even gotten to the messiest part yet, okay? So remember that whole little Egypt incident where, you know, Abraham was worried that the Egyptians would think that his wife of only 65 years old was a babe? Um, how did he resolve that 25 years earlier? Genesis chapter 12. Say you're my sister, he said 25 years earlier, so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. It's almost the exact same Hebrew, the exact same situation, the exact same result in the sense of what Abraham did. And this has so perplexed Christian his, uh, literary scholars that some have conjectured that in the recording of Abraham's life that someone somewhere along the line must have accidentally recorded the same occasion twice so that it appears in, in Abraham's life twice, but it's so similar and such a dumb thing to do that they had to have copied it twice and it only happened once. You know what I think? I think that scholar they're kind of overthinking it a little bit. Here's why. I don't have to look any further than my own life to see dumb decisions on repeat. I don't have to look any further than my life to see a bad, sinful attitude on repeat. And if outside people would look at the story of my life and see how I act once and that month, not to mention 25 years later, and see almost the exact same circumstance, they would think, man, some author must have written about the same thing two times, but it really wasn't that way. I just keep falling into the same trap. I thought this week about how I could, you know, think of some examples for you. So, so I have some. Hopefully you might relate to some of these things. If not, you probably will, will think of your own. How, how's this one? Um, I know that I have You put yourself in the I perspective, hopefully. I know I have a t- this, this problem with bringing the tension and stresses of work home with me. I don't want to do that anymore. 
I'm not going to do that today like I did yesterday. I do it again. Or I, uh, I know the last time we got together with the girls, the women, <laughs> it kind of ended up being just a lot of gossip about people that wasn't really very productive. I, I, I don't want that to happen this time. And it happens again. Or guys, last time I went to my son's game, I know that I let my overcompetitives get the best of me, and I, I said things to the ref or to other parents or to the other parents that I shouldn't have said. I'm not going to let that happen again, and it happens again. Well, the last time I was at a wedding reception, I drank too much, and you find yourself at the bar again at the next one. Or I know that the last time I made a purchase like this, it was not good for our finances. It wasn't being a good steward of what I have, but you're on Amazon, you're at the mall, and somehow you do it again. <laughs> and again, if an author looked at your life, they'd be like, I think someone's writing the same story three, four times. This couldn't have happened. I mean, who and over again? And we have to confess, I do. Why? Before we get to that, our next fill-in. We're messy people with the messy tendency to choose the mess of sin. Yeah, enough messy in there. (laughs) We're messy people, and we have the messy tendency to choose the mess of sin. Why? This is true for all of us, that if left to ourselves, to, not all the time, but most of the time, gravitate towards me. The Bible says we were born with something called a sinful nature. And what that means is there's a a nature in us that leans away from God. And that nature is at the heart of what Paul wrestles with in Romans chapter 7. I'm just going to really quickly reread these words. Paul said, I have the desire to do what's good. So there's that, that, I guess, God part in us, especially for those who are, but I, I can't carry it out. I can't do it. For I don't do the good I want to do. But the evil I don't want to do seems like that's what I keep on doing. How did Paul know how I'm feeling? How did Paul know the sumo wrestling that goes on in my heart? Because every one of us have this natural tendency to lean in and away from God. And as Paul thinks of his own life, and oh, by the way, he's like one of the best Christians, so to speak, ever to live, like the the best pastor or evangelist ever to live, or at least one of them. As he wrestles with that in his own heart, his response, his reaction is verse 24. What a wretched man I am. I really stink. And I bet if he had been married, which he wasn't, he would never have admitted that to his wife, because we don't admit it to people. But in our hearts, we sometimes get sick of our mess, how I can't be the man, the woman, the kid I want to be. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? There's only, there's only one thing that I can think of right now that will help someone to rescue me because I can't, I can't do it on my own. Verse 25. Thanks, is the essence of God's love for messy people. He delivers me from the result of that mess through Jesus Christ our Lord. This was 
earth-shatteringly different than what the ancients thought about the gods. When people messed up and they thought about the gods, people for centuries thought about lightning bolts and thunder and judgment and anger. But the God of Abraham and the, the God, the Father of Jesus, he responds to Abraham's messiness with grace, with love, without rejection, with invitation. And 4,000 years later, it's, it's the same for us. You know, when, when people show themselves to be unlovable, when they're really messy, people tend to retreat from them. Remember Lakti? What's happening with all of his endorsements right now? I'm surprised he still had people endorsing him, but that's a different you know, topic. They're all leaving. They're distancing themselves. And oh, by the way, if you clean yourself up first, then maybe, maybe I'll have a relationship with you again. What if, what if God waited for us to clean ourselves up? We would never have a relationship because we would continually fall into the same trap that Paul speaks about. But the thing about God's grace is that he stepped into our mess for able to clean it up. Ephesians says, while we were still sinners, while we were still sitting in the mess, Christ, in love, died for us. Think about Jesus actually literally coming into the mess of this world as he becomes a human being. Remember his first bed next to the manure pile? Kind of messy. I wonder if God was trying to to tell us something about what this would be. I know he was humble, willing to get dirty. Remember, Remember Jesus' life? He continually seemingly gravitated towards the messes, not because he approved of it, but because he knew the messy people needed him. And he ate with them, and people were surprised. And he befriended them, and people were amazed. And what I, I want you to know, people like me and you, who get, who get down of messes, is that Jesus has promised to come to you as well. You don't need to get a certain amount of cleanliness before you get forgiven. He forgives you and makes you clean and makes you his. And so you're all invited. We're all given that relationship through Christ of being his child. Our next says, Jesus was willing to come into our mess. I read this statement that I wish I could claim as being my own, but that would be lying. It's a really good one, though, this week. It is only through the lens of our mess that we can understand the depths of God's grace. See, you can hear about grace and undeserved love and think, oh, yeah, that's awesome. But it's a step back. And you put the the mess in front of you and you look through the mess to God's love. Do you understand the true depths of God's grace that he would come to us in the midst of our mess and forgive us? That's a sermon. That's something to take home. 
Let me close with this, our last villain. Jesus is willing to come into our mess, but he doesn't want us to stay there. See, what I don't want you to go home with today is to think, oh, great, God loves messy people, and I'm really messy. I treat my wife really badly, and you know what? He comes to me, and that's okay. (laughs) Then we would be taking God's grace, and we would be messing it up. Yeah, he forgives us before we can do a single thing, but he doesn't want us to stay where we're at. Do you think God was happy that Abraham kept lying about his situation? Do you think God is happy about our sin, our continual, you know, repeat of certain things? Absolutely not. And so, how do we not stay there? Well, number five, identify and guard. I think it would be really helpful this week if you feel, and we all have it, of life that seems to be on repeat, like Abraham with lying, that we just identify that and call it out, our area of weakness. Here's what Martin Luther once said. He said, the devil will go over the fence of your heart at the point where it's the lowest. The devil always attacks our hearts and goes over the fence at the area of our life where the fence is the lowest. What he means is where we are most susceptible So for some of us, maybe it's overworking. For others of us, maybe it's laziness. For others of us, our temptation is to be discontented and unhappy about our place in life. For others of us, it's anger issues. For others of us, our temptation is to fill our calendars with good things but not the best things. For others of us, it might be overeating, overdrinking, oversleeping, whatever it might be. For others of us, it might just be the internet. We need to identify whether it be time or sites that we really shouldn't be on and, and then guard. Then identify what it is and then guard our hearts and guard that area of our life. Work on building up the fence in the place where it's the lowest. And, and so here's some things to think about. It, it, it's It's certain circumstances you need to avoid. Maybe it's certain situations. Uh, Maybe it's certain people. You know, young people, choose your friends wisely, but adults, let's not kid ourselves. Our friends have a big deal to do with our view of life and our attitude. Maybe maybe to, to guard, it's as simple as getting a filter on your internet, okay? Or asking someone to be your accountability partner. They're going to ask you the question you don't really want to answer, but you know you need to. Identify and guard. Identify and guard. You know what the alternative is? The alternative is to just let the mess sit. <laughs> it's like... Um, the closet in my boy's room. If I don't identify that it's dirty or messy, the mess is just going to be there. So I don't identify and guard. I identify and direct, okay? But the closet ain't going to get better on its own. When it comes to sin, we've been forgiven. So the eternal consequences have been taken away. But as we respond to that, wanting to live more like he's created us to be, it's not going to happen 
without God working in us and through us. And so let us, as we rejoice in of God coming to our mess, let us be passionate about not staying there. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, part of Abraham's life that you preserved these 4,000 years. And now we ask that as we see this example in his life, that we would respond to it and to learn from his tendency to lie. And may we respond, first of all, with a great joy and thankfulness and forgiveness and with a passion for changing those things that are wrong in our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, um, our ushers will be gathering our offerings today as we have a chance to give back to the the God who uh, has given us all things. At the same time, if you could take a moment to fill out one of those Black Connection books, that would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. this time, I would invite the, uh, the men who will be helping distribute communion to please come forward to, to be compu- communed in just a moment. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, later in the